Welcome to Africa Forward, a podcast from Africa 50 in partnership with FP Studios. This series is dedicated to looking at how countries in Africa are building a new future for the continent by bolstering its infrastructure. I'm Aisha Sasei. And I'm Carol Pino. Let's start at what's at the heart of all infrastructure projects, energy. Later on, I'll lead our roundtable discussion on how African countries are finding ways to get projects completed and attract new investors. But first, we have to understand who's driving this. Alain Ebobise, CEO of Africa 50, the sponsor of this podcast, explains. We want to change the narrative of Africa as a continent that is always, you know, seeking external support to help us solve our problems to one where Africans are taking the lead in actually crafting solutions to implement our development while also seeking external support to work with us to make this happen. African institutions must be the drivers of this development because what they're able to do will be crucial in the way Africa moves. Because the younger Africans, they are hungry to see things change. But things cannot change unless you have control of the money that will make those things change. That second voice was Dr. Benedicta Roma, president of the African Export-Import Bank. The strengthening of Africa's regional institutions is a major force driving change in Africa. It's something that is felt throughout the continent. It's undeniable that there is a new energy in Africa. There is a feeling in the streets of excitement and opportunity. What you're hearing now is the song Jerusalem by the South African DJ and record producer Master KG. Jerusalem, Not only is the song itself a hit, but a dance made up by a dance troupe in Angola has gone viral, spreading first throughout Africa and now all over the world. Just check out TikTok or Google Airline Cruise and Jerusalem to see what we're talking about. Jerusalem became Africa's first global dance craze. It started in one country in Africa, spread throughout the continent, and to the world. But what does that have to do with infrastructure? Well, a lot more than you'd think. Jerusalem is a case of tech and the internet connecting Africa to the world. But to connect, it takes energy. Africa needs to tap into all of its resources, including the human capital of its 1.3 billion inhabitants. The average age on the continent is just 19 years old. Africa needs to harness its youthful enthusiasm, and that all starts with energy. That's the sound of manufacturing, of production lines humming away. It's also the sound of energy. And most important, it's the sound of jobs. Manufacturing, tech innovation, and the service industry, they all create jobs, and they all take energy. Rose Motiso, Research Director of the Energy for Growth Hub, explains this vital connection during a recent TED Talk. For most countries, the general trajectory of electrification has been as follows. First, large-scale grid infrastructure is put in place, usually with significant public investment. That infrastructure then powers productive centers, such as factories, agricultural mechanization, commercial enterprises, and the like. And this then stimulates economic growth, with Africa's population set to quadruple by the end of the century. 
This is not a theoretical question. Africa needs a lot of energy, and it needs it fast because its population is booming and its economy needs to develop. Here's the challenge: about 600 million people, a bit less than half of all Africa's population, don't have access to reliable energy. It's clear that energy is essential to moving Africa forward. The question is how Africans can now leapfrog ahead, finding new solutions that address both its development needs and climate goals. Fortunately, Africa is endowed with everything needed for energy: huge reserves in traditional energy, but also an abundance of resources needed for solar, wind, hydro, and even geothermal. The CEO of Africa 50, Alain Eboubisse. Points to the Benban Solar Park in Egypt, one of the largest solar parks in the world. It's a massive project, comprising more than seven million photovoltaic panels. To give you a sense of how big that is, the plant can actually be spotted from outer space. But for as big of an achievement as this plant was, perhaps more impressive was how the financing came together. I'm extremely proud. Of one of the projects that Africa 50 has funded in Egypt, delivering clean power at very competitive pricing. I should also mention that we were able to implement this project very quickly. It took us about six months from when we got in to when we were able to raise financial uh, close. So this is the kind of examples we want to replicate. Reporter Laura Rosbrow Tellem has more on the project. While Egypt is an important oil producer in Africa, the country plans to source 20% of its electricity from renewable sources as part of its energy transition targets. Egypt has plenty of sunlight and available space in remote areas, and so the government decided to invest heavily in solar to help solve its electricity needs. They selected a site in Benban, a remote desert location 400 miles south of Cairo, and they wanted the plant to be huge, much larger than a typical small solar park. It turns out the spot was perfect," says Mohammed Amer from the Norwegian renewable power company Skatec Solar. Skatec brought a new type of highly efficient and innovative technology to Benban, a two-sided solar panel where electricity can be generated from both sides of the panel. It needs a certain condition, and Egypt uh, uh, has a certain condition where the reflection of the sun on the sand can hit the back of the panel and generate electricity. But before any panel was installed, the government asked EcoConserve Environmental Solutions to assess the environmental and social impacts of Benban. How would building such a large solar plant, maybe one of the biggest in the world, affect the local community? Was the construction going to be environmentally safe, and could it hurt wildlife or the natural habitat of the area? This part was surprisingly easy. There was barely anything living in Benban. According to EcoConserve Zainab Hafez, they also met little resistance from local communities who lived nearby. They all were welcoming of the project. EcoConserve estimated that the construction of the plant would create more than 5,000 jobs, but a bigger hurdle was getting the project financed. In 2014, the Egyptian government passed something called the Feed-in Tariff Decree, which is basically a law saying, in effect, you know, we want to promote more renewables and we want to do it through the private sector,、uh, which they hadn't done up until then. That's Harry Boyd Carpenter. He's the director for energy in Europe, Middle East, and Africa for the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, also known as EBRD. Boyd Carpenter was one of the people brought in to help Egypt strategize on how best to execute the new law. 
As he explains, the feed in tariff structure helps make things bankable. That's a term often used when investors feel like there's low enough risk for them to feel comfortable moving forward. So it's about saying, we as the as the government or as a, as a state utility will take the risk of, you know, how much power we actually want, and we'll also take the risk of what value this power has.、Um, but you, as the private sector, won't take those risks, but you will take the risks of building it, fin- financing it, and operating it. So it's actually the sort of sort of risk allocation you need to get projects like this built. So you are very well secured. Whatever you generate up to the agreed capacity, the government is committed to buy it and pay you back. Again, this is Mohammed Amer from Norway's Skatex Solar. Their role in the project was not only to assist with the technology, but they also proudly helped finance the project. So back in 2017, we were the first、uh, multinational company to sign the first power purchase agreement in Egypt. Which encouraged a lot of people actually to join us and move ahead with the project. In all, about 30 plants were sold off, each of them having the capacity of producing 50 megawatts of electricity. Amer says Scottec went in for a half dozen plants for a cost of just under a half billion dollars. In all, the cost of building the Benban Solar Park is estimated to have been around four billion dollars. For Scottec, this all adds up to a handsome profit, says Amer. We are getting paid at a specific tariff, which is 8.4 cent per kilowatt, and the agreement is 25、uh, years take-or-pay agreement with the government. This is the same deal all the other investors received as well. EBRD's Boyd Carpenter says this kind of return is the reason why the project was able to attract such a wide array of investors and developers, which was an important goal for Egypt. They always said, "Look, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build an industry here. We're trying to create a sector, and so we want to use this as an opportunity to bring in a lot of investors and get them interested in Egypt, get them invested in the sector, because then when we come with more renewables in the country, we'll have an investor community. We'll have a, you know, we'll, we'll have spread the net wide, and I think that was a very wise decision, and you can see it now in the way the industry is developing, because it, you know, instead of just having one big developer in the country, you've got multiple investors in the country." Today, the Benban Solar Park is the largest solar plant in Africa and one of the largest in the whole world. Each day, it's estimated to generate 1.5 gigawatts of power. That's enough to supply energy for a million homes. Not only is the plant a technological marvel, it's also a remarkable achievement for how to get major energy projects built in Africa. Today, Benban is an important part of Egypt's energy mix. As a number of new energy projects are coming online. The country's electricity needs are largely being addressed. In fact, the country is now working with its neighbors to become an energy exporter. For Africa Forward, I'm Laura Rosbrautellum. Many of the hopes and aspirations of Africans hinge on securing sustainable and affordable power. African leaders and developers are extremely aware of this, which is why so much of infrastructure financing has gone into energy projects. For today's roundtable, we've assembled a group that knows all about unlocking Africa's energy potential, and also how to ensure these projects are bankable, meaning they've been de-risked enough to attract financing. Joining us for the discussion is Vera Songwe. She's the Secretary General of the United Nations Economic Commission on Africa. That's a part of the UN that looks to study, promote, develop, and strengthen the economies of African states. Also with us is Hafez Al Samawi. He's a professor of energy engineering at Zagazig University in Egypt. 
Dr. El Salmawi also helped oversee Egypt's electrical grid. And we're also very pleased to welcome Ernest Moniz. He served as U.S. Secretary of Energy under the Obama administration. Let's start with why energy matters so much. We've often looked at development in Africa in terms of poverty alleviation, but only recently in terms of growth, job creation, prosperity. You know, Dr. Songwei, I know this is an issue that you look at all the time. Can you give us a lay of the land? Look, I think when we look at growth in almost every developed country, we don't find any country that has developed without having sort of minimum access to energy or 100% of the population having access to energy. Second to agriculture, energy is the largest, most promising investment that we should be doing on the continent. Now, the continent is full of energy resources. We have huge capacities of gas, 37% of the world's gas is on the continent, hydro 15%, you know, solar, you name it, and the continent has it. I think the next question is how do you attract the right kind of investment? To do that, you must improve the governance environment. Many of our utilities are not doing well. And so we do need to find different models of how we you know, provide and supply energy on the continent. The private sector is in it. And so we know how to do it. We just now need to make sure that we can bring that to scale in a way that actually changes the dial. So Secretary Moniz, how do we bring in that investment? What we are finding is that when all is said and done, electricity, first of all, is like the Uber infrastructure because every other infrastructure uh, depends upon it and having it reliably. And frankly, Africa has got a lot of generation uh, resources and opportunities, but you have to get it to people. And what we find is it's actually the distribution uh, infrastructure, if you like, which is the weakest link in the chain. So there, lots of issues have to be addressed, including uh, the issue of being able to attract the capital. And to attract the capital, one has to have uh, assurances in the stability of commitments on all sides, for example, to actually get the entire system built. I mean, we should not lose sight of the fact that there is certainly progress in Africa, but a long way to go also to take advantage of things like uh, regional power pools, uh, much more integration, and of course, the investment in infrastructure. Dr. El Salmawi, can we also have you talk about the importance of distribution? Actually, you couldn't build electricity infrastructure without having supply infrastructure, about having road infrastructure. So basically, this is a kind of an integrated kind of development where all of them depends on each other. Generation, transmission, distribution is a very much important to attract low-cost investment to the system. So have an affordable energy supply to consumers. Yeah, could I just add to Hafez? Completely agree. And let's take another enormous opportunity, uh, and that is the tremendous natural gas resources in Africa. Uh, we feel that there's a tremendous opportunity to use some of that resource at least for economic development in Africa paired with renewables. But as Hafez said, uh, there's a lot of integrated infrastructure requirements to be able to get that gas essentially from the coast to many of the inland locations. You know, Africa has these tremendous resources of oil and gas, and yet the world is looking towards renewables and often pressuring Africa, saying, well, you could leapfrog going directly into renewables. That's where you should focus. But other countries have industrialized using oil and gas. 
Listen, you know, we heard recently Germany asking for 18 years to phase out of coal. The Japanese have said they will phase out of coal, but they are also asking for somewhere around 10 years. And so we find that a just transition for Africa must include gas. And particularly because, you know, there's all these new discoveries, we know that the contribution of gas to sort of overall global emissions is quite low. And actually, yes, we're talking a lot about, you know, solar energy and wind energy, but we must also admit that a lot of the research on the right kinds of battery storage that is going to be needed, if you want to power huge batteries, we're not there yet. And so there needs to be some basic base load. We have betted a lot on hydro because we have a lot of hydro, but with climate change also, we saw uh, very recently Zambezi going down and drying up. So I think the next up is gas. When you look at countries like Nigeria, you know, it's almost unconscionable to say to Nigeria, don't exploit your gas. And yes, we talk about gas on the energy side, but 23 million African women suffer from respiratory diseases every day because of the poor cooking materials that they use. And we know that we can change that. I believe the objectives usually is to reach low-cost energy, to be affordable to consumers. Uh, environmentally friendly technologies is very much important. Uh, diversification of these sources, because relying on one sources sometimes provide kind of a risk to the country. So this is a general rule to diversify, to have low impact on the environment. And I think if I may just come up on that point uh, of Hafez is, is, yes, not all countries have all of this energy mix, but one of the things that Africa is now doing is seeing whether we can strengthen our regional power pools. We have a fantastic example of a power pool in West Africa, the uh, uh, Senegal uh, River Valley Basin Authority that is doing very well. They have been trading energy, you know, when it's the rainy season, we get it from Guinea and Mali, when it's the dry seasons, we get solar from Mauritania and Senegal, and that has been working really perfectly. I think that if you're linked and connected to a power pool, it makes it so much easier. Secretary Moniz, maybe you can go through some of these renewable energy, alternative energies that are really, you know, on the horizon that could just be absolutely transformative. There's no question that renewables are progressing dramatically in terms of cost reduction. Uh, And in fact, uh, Africa in its development uh, now in the 21st century actually has more technological opportunities than some other societies did when they developed. The problem is not confusing that with the idea that you don't still need a broad set of opportunities that have to work together. Clearly in the United States in this century, we have had a enormous development of inexpensive natural gas. What that has done is, number one, it's actually reduced our CO2 emissions uh, substantially by displacing coal. Number two, it has been the chief enabler of our growth in wind and solar. Often people think of these as somehow enemies. It's quite the contrary. Uh, We could not be developing wind and solar the way we have uh, without natural gas uh, as a balancer for those uneven uh, uh, generators. So we need to have, I think, both views that Africa does have many more opportunities right now to sensibly employ renewables, and not only wind and solar, but hydro and geothermal. And that is in no way in conflict with the importance of developing something like gas. I might also add, very importantly, developing energy in the way that we are talking about will also empower 
women very, very much uh, in Africa. And that itself will be an enormous leg up on economic development. So this all kind of fits together. And, and energy certainly is core to the whole approach. In looking at economic development, the biggest thing that is happening on the continent today is the Continental Free Trade Agreement. I don't even see how you can have that without infrastructure and particularly without energy. Look, as we talk about energy, as we talk about the CFTA, the fundamentals, what I like to call the enablers, the most basic enabler of the CFTA must and has to be energy. If you look at countries like Vietnam, they went to 100% energy access within the first 15 years of their sort of development trajectories. We took too long to get there. And hence, I think the urgency when we talk about energy today, we still tend to talk about it a little bit like, well, we'll do a little bit of this here and a little bit of that here. I really don't think we have the luxury. You know, 420 megawatts of hydropower in, in, in Cameroon, 400 megawatts of solar in Egypt. Those sound like huge numbers of investment from Africa 50. We need 4,000, you know, to be able to even begin to make a dent. And I think the beauty there is that Africa is sort of the virgin continent. We don't need to destroy to build. And so we just need to do it in the right ways to ensure that it can actually work. You know, Dr. El-Salmawi, um, one of the things that is often not really discussed in this, but greatly impacts both the investment and the usage of energy is the regulatory framework. You know, and you have to both bring in regulations that help investment, but at the same time protect the public interest. Can you talk to us about those two often competing interests and how you solved it and how other countries can solve that as well? Uh, the system should be transparent, predictable, so you don't surprise investors with uh, any regulations which has come through without any kind of consultation and preparation. Disclosure for information, clear real rules, all of these reduce risk of project development. It's very important to have a comprehensive regulatory framework. We think about energy in terms of, you know, the national grid and uh, these mega projects. But how do you get to the last mile to everybody in Africa? In trying to ensure that we leave no one behind, we're working now with uh, Rwanda to understand how you do sort of, you know, distributed energy at the rural levels. The framework for that has, I think, three important components. The first component is what is the degree of the subsidy, right? Because the minute you are out that far, there has to be a subsidy component to the investment. That's the first one. I think the second one is a lot of the distributed energy that we're doing now for sort of ensuring that no one is left behind is solar, which means essentially that, you know, they have energy during the daytime, but it's very difficult then to sort of store it in the evenings. And so what more uh, analysis do we need to bring to that? And how can we do better with that? And the third thing that we have seen, I think, is using this kind of distributed energy for a productive sector of the economy. By definition, almost when you're in the rural areas, it's agriculture. Even if you bring solar energy into these rural communities, so that the women can dry their food during the day and pump some water so the girls don't have to walk 14 kilometers, you already start changing the income mix. So you start with energy for pumps, energy for drying, and you end up with energy for milling and eventually energy for manufacturing. And I think in the rural areas, the work really is about how you work that transition from a hugely subsidized, less cost-reflective investment to one that because you have generated wealth, becomes attractive for private investors to come in. 
Let's look to the future for rounding this up. And I'd love each of you to talk about what Africa will look like with energy in 10 years, 20 years, even 50 years. Dr. Al-Salmawi, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, Actually, Africa has some challenges for sure. We have now around 600 million people in Africa who don't have an access. Although we might triple electricity generation, we still might have 50 million still lacking of access. So one of the challenges for sure is a high growth rate for population in Africa, which have might have an impact, and this is need to be tackled very importantly. Uh, but for sure, Africa has a very bright future, uh, reduction cost in renewable, reduction cost in general of building infrastructure now uh, could make it much easier to uh, Africa to go forward with Africa electrification and enabling electricity supplies. So there is challenges, but there is for sure opportunities. Secretary Muniz. Africa, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years from now with energy. How's that going to look? Well, first of all, let me say uh, uh, I'm a physicist, and I believe that makes me inherently optimistic. Uh, And so uh, uh, some of the challenges, uh, demographics, for example, I say, wait, what a great opportunity. The population is so young, uh, and there's much to do. The the infrastructure has to be built. Uh, It's so critical. But we also need to work very, very hard on the governance structures to be able to attract capital that can rely on uh, long-term uh, returns uh, on that capital. But I'm, I'm very optimistic. It's going to be a different Africa economically in 10, 20 years. Dr. Songwei, last word. What will Africa look like 10, 20, 50 years from now? Look, I am a positive realist. It is going to be an Africa that will be full of energy, full of life, full of innovation. We may not have you know, tons of skill as most of the other continents do, but the little we have is being put, I think, to extremely good use. When you go to Senegal and Rwanda and Cameroon and Mauritania, the kinds of innovation that you see, the, the, the sort of ideas that are coming out of this generation is you, you are amazed by it. And so my sense is for each of those ideas, we have a unicorn in waiting. And hopefully in 20 years, we will no longer be talking about a population of Africa that no longer has access. Each African will have access to electricity and our manufacturing capacity will be 20 times stronger. Dr. Sangwe, Secretary Muniz, Dr. El Salmawi, this has really been a fantastic discussion. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. And thanks to my co-host, Carol Pino, for leading that roundtable. That will do it for this episode of Africa Forward. I'm Aisha Sasei. Our program was produced by Carol Pino, along with Africa 50 and FP Studios. Special thanks to our reporter, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. All opinions and views in our podcast do not necessarily reflect that of Africa 50 or foreign policy. For more information on Africa 50, please check out Africa and then the numbers 50.com. And for more on FP Studios, you can head to foreignpolicy.com and click on podcasts. Thanks for listening.